so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! Guaranteed to be more overhyped than Stoffel Van Dorn in a Will Buxton Twitter account. Welcome to Motorsport 101. everybody welcome to episode 30 god i've lost count 34 now of motorsport 101 yes dude the whole doing this thing on a weekly basis has kind of made me all confused about the numbering at this point but at this point yeah it's you know we've had a lot of these episodes done now already and we're gonna keep the train rolling this time around and with me as ever we have mr adam johnson Good evening, morning, whenever you guys are listening to this podcast. Good to be on again. And, um, well, I don't blame you for being confused about the numbering because right now we are motorsport fans and Formula One people who talk about Formula One. And, yeah, that's pretty confusing on its own right, really, as mm. you'll find out as we get into this thing. Yep. And as, as always, our American cousin, Mr. Ryan King. <laughs> yeah, good. Give me a second. I'm checking the F1 subreddit. I got to make sure Will Buxton never hears about this podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, he should find about it. It'll hype us to oblivion only to disappoint all four, 400 or so of our listeners. Um, <laughs> Dude. Hey, I'm using accurate numbers here. Nobody can blame me for all this. But anyway, now I know like last week was a ridiculously busy weekend in terms of motorsport. And I know about a couple of requests from people like Dre, why haven't you talked about MotoGP yet this season? The reason why is because there really hasn't been that much to talk about. I know Argentina compared to other series. A- <laughs> yes, exactly. And as much as Argentina was kind of a newsworthy race for many reasons, we just haven't had the time. I, I do like to keep the show to under, you know, an hour and a half if I can help it. We might push up towards two hours on occasion. But if we mentioned everything that happened last week, we'd be here for three hours, quite frankly, because last week there was V8 supercars, there was IndyCar, Formula One, MotoGP, World Superbikes, and yeah, Formula E as well. So there was <clears> so <throat> much to get through. And <clears throat> honestly, Formula One has so many newsworthy topics but I kind of have to dedicate most of the show this time around to talking about Formula One. And do you know what's funny, Dre? Do you know what's funny? Mm. You didn't even mention what I was at for the entire weekend, which was the first round of the British Touring Car Championship. I have been desperately catching up ever since. (laughs) I literally got back and they were like, Dre was just like, Johnson, watch the Formula One immediately. That is in order. I was like, what about the IndyCar? Yeah, that too. Formula E? Yeah, if you can, if you've got time. Okay. Yeah because, yeah, because seriously, Johnson was at the BTCC opener at Brands Hatch this weekend, and yeah, he was busy doing BTCC and pretending to be a journalist. So, uh, you know, <laughs> excuse <a>, me, what? <laughs> That's what we're all doing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the gimmick's holding up. The gimmick is holding up. Like somehow they're not in. They're not. They're not onto us yet. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Most of the show this week is going to be about Formula 1 on this one. Anything left over, we'll most likely talk about on next week's episode, mostly because we want to keep it to a relatively condensed show. Um, So apologies for that. Hopefully we'll get ironed out down the road and we'll play catch up eventually. But in the world of Formula 1 this time around, obviously we had the Bahrain Grand Prix this last weekend, and Nico Rosberg takes its fifth win in a row 
tightening with Sterling Moss on the all-time wins list, the most ever by a non-champion. And he dominated ahead of Kimi Raikkonen taking his eighth Bahrain podium. Eighth, that's crazy. Um, his eighth podium in Bahrain as Lewis Hamilton got torpedoed by Valtteri Bottas. We'll talk about that and all the other Bahrain highlights in a minute. Um, we'll be talking about Haas as Romain Grosjean goes one better than Australia and finishes in the top five for the first time in fifth position. And we'll be talking about whether public perception has already turned on Haas because, shocker, they're actually good right out of the box. Um, we'll be talking about the elimination qualifying again as Bahrain had elimination qualifying. And it actually wasn't that bad second time around. May have been better. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Hamilton breaking the lap record and why every V10 person in the book just how has brown underwear. We'll be talking more about the GPDA and some conspiracies and some negative thoughts regarding that camp as Alex Wurtz has gone all political on us again. Well, and we'll be talking about Lewis Hamilton in the press. Uh, is he getting a bad rap at this point? Hmm. We'll be talking about that. Is he, is, is he ends up getting caught smoking some shisha, dismissing Rosberg's winning streak and his effect on TV ratings, which is actually very, very interesting indeed. And we'll be talking about Stoffel Van Dorn debuting on the podium, the Fernando Alonso injury debate, and that awkward conversation with Johnny Herbert. As well as that, we'll be talking about IndyCar as they had their second round of the championship in Phoenix this past weekend as Scott Dixon carried on where he left off last season by winning in Phoenix ahead of Simon Pagina, who's now the championship leader as half of Penske suffered blowouts, not to mention Max Chilton having a sensational um, first oval performance in IndyCar proper, but he's also incurred the wrath of Graham Rahal, and that's always a fun ride. We'll be talking about that as well. We might talk MotoGP. We're kind of winging it on this one. We might see how the time holds up. And we'll talk about anything on that if we have time. But let's get into the meat and potatoes of, of, of uh, Formula One this past weekend. And it's funny, King, that, you know, obviously the politics has dominated the talk of Formula One since maybe even before the season started. But it's hard to complain about the on-track product right now because I think for the second race running, Bahrain was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely... Ooh. Oh, I want to say it's the best Bahrain Grand Prix I've ever seen, but I'd say 2013 was pretty. Yeah, 2014 was. I'd say it's equal with 2014. Mm, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I think it was certainly a, a, a very solid race indeed. One I definitely enjoyed. Um, up there with Australia is a race I definitely thought we was was pretty darn solid from top to bottom. Um, shame we didn't have a battle for the front, but um, it happens in Formula One these days. Something we should be used to by now, given that Mercs have won. 34 out of the last 40. Uh, but uh, um, on top of that, Johnson's echoing King sentiments there. Pretty darn good race. Yeah, pretty much. I think the only reason I wouldn't put it ahead of 2014 is, as you said, the battle for the win was never really in any doubt. Rosberg had it sewn up by corner one. But I think what was really nice about Bahrain is that it kind of proved that, no, Australia wasn't a fluke. These new tyre regulations have really added a, a big variety to the field right now. For the first time in a long time, we have genuine battles up and down the field. We have contrasting strategies. We have enough flexibility from the teams not to just sort of go you know, by, you know, run one of maybe two plays in a race, potentially. There's mm. a lot of different options they can do. And combine that with the fact that some teams we'll get onto in a bit have really stepped up. Some have fallen back a little bit. That pretty much the battle behind Ferrari, you've got Merck and Ferrari who are pretty much the standouts right now. 
but even they have stumbled a little bit in the first two rounds. And behind that, it is literally anybody's game right now. Everyone stepped up. Even Manor last year, who were the whipping boys, they're stepped up. They're relatively on the pace as well. It's very competitive from around fifth on back. So even if the battle for the win is not compelling, there's always... Same as in Australia, in Bahrain, there was always something going on on the track. There was always a battle for position somewhere happening, you know, maybe just outside the top 10, maybe for the top five. There was always something going on right until the pretty very end. And that, it was a, it says a lot that for me, especially, I was pretty much engaged throughout the entire race. There was always something to pay attention to, which I think, big plus for Formula One. Yes, I completely agree with that notion. Again, it, it's nice that there's been no real complaints about the Entrepolitan. I have to agree with Johnson in a sense of the strategy group gets a lot of things questionable, but they were absolutely right with the tyre procedures this year. The, like, having free over the weekend genuinely has made the racing better. And I have to give them credit where it's due. It's It's, it's been a very nice solution and it's worked out quite nicely and it's enabled some other cool things to happen, which we'll get to when we talk about the elimination qualifying again. But King, happy days. Your boy's now won five in a row. Yeah, five in a row. I mean, only one more. And what? The only drivers who've had longer winning streaks than him are Michael Schumacher, I think Alberto Ascari, and mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian Vettel. Yeah, uh, Scari and Vettel both had nine race win streaks in their careers. I know Vettel was nine in the same season as Scari had nine over two seasons. Not sure what Schumacher's longest winning streak was, if I'm honest, but um, apparently it's at least six by process of elimination. Uh, but uh, Rosberg is 16th career win, as Johnson said, pretty much wrapped up by turn one, given that Hamilton got pile-drivered by uh, Valtteri Bottas's front wing as they went into turn one. Bottas got a drive-through penalty for it um, for causing an avoidable accident. Fair call, King? Yeah, completely fair. I mean, mm. that's the worst that could have been to him unless they decided to just straight up disqualify him. Yeah, I think... I mean, it, I think it doesn't look all that bad in real time, but once you see Hamilton's on board... You can see that like Hamilton's got every right to think he's got the corner. Mm. And as he's turned, next thing you know, he's been spun around because it's just turning straight, straight into Bottas's front wing who had no chance of making the making the apex of the corner. So, yeah, can't argue with that call. Completely fair. It was a bad day in general for Williams, given how often they struggled. They tried to make the medium tires work, and it just didn't. Again, uh, and into the intrigue of the strategies and whatnot, you know, seeing a team try the mediums, and the mediums just didn't work. It was a poor race tire. While another team was able to, you know, make it work more than anything else, and it was the super softs, and more specifically, Haas King, as Grosjean finished one better than last time a fifth place finish uh Grosjean's best finish in a race in general since Spa last year and uh do you think he's still reminiscing about Lotus because it looks like Haas legitimately has a package here yeah like it may be only two races into the season but looking back it seems like Grosjean made the perfect decision to leave Lotus for Haas yeah I, I completely agree I mean on paper I, mean, I said this on Race World TV in my top five series that I said that Haas would score 50 points in its opening season. Mm. I thought that was a little bit lofty when I said it, but heck, they've already got, what, 22 down already? <laughs> so um, or nearly 20 points out of that 50 over the, out of the first two rounds, and now Haas have already moved the goalposts to say, yeah, we can score points every round now, sod it. <laughs> um, Johnson, what was the analogy you made for it again? 
uh, it's a bit like those old Formula One games where, you know, you get into career mode and you'd normally be with a really crap team, but mm-hmm. you'd score like a fluke podium at one race and then suddenly the the AI or the career would adjust the expectations and say, right, for the next race, we're expecting you to finish on the podium every single race. Otherwise, we're <laughs> yeah. going to look at terminating your contract. And you're all sitting there going, wait a minute, I fluked that. Res- no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. But on a serious point with Haas, I, I like the fact that we all, I think we all had a sneaky feeling that Haas would do pretty well, right? And what's interesting mm-hmm. so far is that this is pretty much all on Grosjean so far because Gutierrez has had retirements in both races. We haven't really got a handle on his representative pace yet. Um, certainly, it appears that Grosjean is the leader of that team. And I think the combination right now is of... We all know that Haas kind of got the blueprint down for success in NASCAR. They figured it out. Ally with a very, very strong team. Get your engines from them. So that's a big worry taken care of. Ally as much as possible with one of the biggest players in the game and give yourself every chance of success and, of course, spend money. Um, so I think a combination of that, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit, because some teams are, they've had their noses put out of joint, you know, so, you know, uh, it's, it's going to happen. But a combination of that, plus Roman Grosjean, I think, punching that car even higher above its weight, because that's just what Roman Grosjean does. He's just that frigging good. And we've we've got this crazy scenario. I mean... Is a podium that much of a, 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 you know, is that too fanciful to predict this year? Uh, Go on, King. <laughs> yeah, I'd definitely say so, because I'd say that Mercedes and Ferrari have a tight grasp on the podium with four cars between them. I think they're far enough ahead of the field that, you know, even if one car doesn't even make the start, they could still wrap up all three podium yeah, positions. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it would kind of be like a Russia last year when Perez managed to get a podium or, you know, Grosjean managed to get a podium last year at Spa. It would have to have, you know, something drastic happen to, say, both Ferraris and one of the Mercs or whatever. It would, I think, on raw pace alone, they won't be able to do it. But if they're around the top five and some of those in front of them fall out, they've got every chance. Yeah, all I was going to say is that the guy that's benefited the most from these earlier issues has been Daniel Ricciardo because he's had two fourth places since the season started. And I don't think anybody had Red Bull being that high up the field this early on. Mm-hmm. I think on paper, Williams was the number three team. And Reb- and despite that, Red Bull have had a better start to the season than they had last year with a pair of Daniel Ricciardo fourth places. So I'm pretty sure Ricciardo's now third in the championship as a result of two rounds. So yeah, like the guy that's just feasted on the week has been Daniel Ricciardo. So far more than anything else but uh there's been a lot of cynicism towards the Haas team already since since the opening round i think, I think the uh the 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 fairy dust has kind of uh sunk at Haas already given that i know friend of the show big mac ben mcphillips from downforce radio was was very adamant in talking to me about this where he said that he reckons that Haas were bending the rules by being in this really advantageous position of, you know, kind of, you know, working with Ferrari to an extent. Um, King, do you want to disprove that real quick? (laughs) I mean, I'd say... King is cracking his knuckles. (laughs) I genuinely say that if the door is open, let them take it because there's clearly nothing in the rules saying that you can have an outside supplier build your chassis, which they did with the Lara. You can buy a power unit plus other components like a transmission from your power unit supplier with them being Ferrari. So 
they're using every advantage they can afford. Mm. There's nothing in the rules saying that they can't. It's just that other smaller teams can't afford to take the same route as they can, either because they're being actively denied those those avenues like Williams, or they can't afford it like Manor. Mm. I think what's happened here is that it's a classic. Uh, some teams and, and some uh, the the fans in general, I think they've had their noses put out of joint a little bit. I don't think anyone expected Haas to start the season so quickly. Uh, from a fan perspective, I just don't understand the flip-flopping because for years we said, oh, isn't it a great shame that, you know, we, we all talked about how, you know, for a real, for a, a, a very short space of time, it looked like all three of the new teams who arrived in 2010, which was, uh, was it HRT, Virgin yeah. and uh, Lotus, which then became Caterham and one of them became Marussia. For a short while, all of them went away and Manor only survived by the skin of their teeth, but Caterham have gone, HRT have gone. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, look at that. It's almost impossible to get into F1 as a new team. And then a new team turns up and not only is settling in very well, but is actually giving some of the big teams a bloody nose and people are going, hang on a minute. No, 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 no. That's not right. That's We can't be having this. There must be illegal things at play. It's just shenanigans. But it's, as, I, as yeah, I say, it just stinks to me. Yeah. From the other teams throwing shade, it just stinks to me like they've had their noses put out of joint. Someone else has come in, shaken up the order. And King's absolutely right. And this is what I was saying earlier with their NASCAR operation. This is a team that won a Sprint Cup championship in 2014 using engines from Hendrick Motorsports, who they beat in the championship. This is what they do. They go, you know what? Our own Having your own engine program is really expensive and a massive money pit. Let's have someone else do that for us. Building your own chassis straight from the off, very difficult. Oh, can we get someone who has experience in this to do it? There we go. Problem solved. So there you go. I, I just, I'm just enjoying the fact that we've got a new face uh, mixing up. I think it's this year, you know, they've been a bit of a breath of fresh air. It's nice to see a new name in there. Once Renault really get going, I think they'll mix things up as well. So I don't know, more power to them. I think they've done things exactly the right way. Hey, if they've got the money to spend... Good on them, because to be honest with you, if no one was prepared to spend the money in Formula 1, we wouldn't have a sport. Exactly, and this is like Haas is exactly what Formula 1 needed, an F1 team that actually had some financial backing behind mm. it, because we all knew that, that Virgin, HRT, and Lotus were going to stink the bed, because right from the off, they were two seconds off even the worst of the backrunners. So... They were never going to be a success, really. I mean, I know Manor has eventually kind of clawed its way into now actually being a decent midfield runner now by the looks of it. But even so, like, this is kind of what we wanted. No, we wanted new investors in F1. We wanted new people with money. And Gene Haas is a billionaire who's been willing to drop $100 million a year into this. And why are we surprised that in the arms race that Formula One is, that the guy with the ingenuity, the money, and the know-how of, you know, borrowing off successful bits was ever going to be a success? And, like, I it's easy to say that in hindsight but like the Haas team is great they have resources they have money they were always going to I think to do well in the end it's just I think it's caught people out how quickly they've gotten up there and you know Romain Grosjean is a very likable figure and the emotion in both his radio calls um since since these opening two rounds in Bahrain has been has been, has been wonderful to see I mean and they, I think you mentioned the American dream about 16 times after the <laughs> after the race is finished between that and the interviews after the race and whatnot. mate Dusty Rhodes will have been so happy 
Yeah, I know, right? Like, you could tell Grosjean's been absolutely living the dream right now of actually being with a competitive team again, like like it's 2013 all over again. But uh, more power to Haas. I mean, they've not broken any rules. They've used their money effectively. They've they've got a good chassis, a good engine. There's no reason why they can't score points every round from here on in because they, they've got the driver to do it. Grosjean, we all know, is he's, he's, um, he's a very, very good driver, right up there with the very best. So there's no reason why... They can't keep going in the future. Um, I mentioned as well, uh, Manners Pascal Werlein with a fantastic result. P13 for him for the Manor team. And uh, like they've normally benefited the most when races have been absolutely crazy. This was like the like a real merit kind of 13th place for Manor King. And it looks like they've got a much better package than last year. Yeah, it looks like they have a much better package than last year, but it seems like they've only leapfrog Sauber. That mm. that basically they leapfrog Sauber, and the only way that they can even get as high as thirteenth is if uh through ret- through retirements from other teams. Mm. I feel like at the moment, what's interesting about the field is that although we have one, maybe two teams kind of out front everything behind is a lot closer like for as long as i've watched formula one there's kind of three distinct tiers in the field there's your top runners sometimes just one team on their own you know like ferrari or red bull in the peak years mercedes uh and then your your midfield maybe you'll have upper and lower midfield areas and then your back markers and you'll have two or three teams like in the mid 2000s it was teams like i don't know jordan that slipped down there minardi arrows you know teams like that jaguar maybe mm-hmm. who more often than not were propping up the table a little bit more and were struggling for points uh, and in the last few years we've had teams mostly the new teams caterham uh, marussia um virgin teams like that and now we've got to a situation where last year manor were just miles away they were just absolutely nowhere they were literally surviving they weren't just treading water they were trying to keep their heads above water to stop them drowning the fact they mm. they survived it's now led to the situation where the midfield and the back marker area are actually pretty closely matched. So Manor aren't that far away now. Sauber, as I predicted before the start of the season, are looking to be in trouble because they're just they're trying to keep their heads above water now. They're almost in the Manor situation from last year. Maybe not as drastic, but still, they're in trouble. But there's still chances for them to be competitive. Renault are finding their feet. I'm pretty sure they'll start stepping forward. McLaren have taken... St- Everyone's, for the most part... In fact, to me, what was most telling is the team that appeared to have stood still the most coming into the season is Force India. They really didn't look that great, considering the calibre of driver and how strong they looked at the end of last year. I think they might be one of the big losers in terms of everyone taking a step forward. Any gains they've made, it's not enough. I'd throw Force India into that hat as well as teams as a team that struggled since the seasons began because yeah. the midfield seems to have taken steps forward. I think Force India are the ones that have taken the brunt of it more than any other team right now because... Uh, we'll, mention him, we'll mention him in a minute, but Stoffel got McLaren's first point of the year as well in 10th place. So it's it's looking like Force India has been the big losers in the, in the midfield shakeup at the moment because they were a team that were in the top six to eight towards the end of last year. And I don't think they've scored any points yet this season apart from Hulkenberg. I think Hulkenberg had ninth, I think, in Australia. But um, they've not had much to show for their, for their gains um, so far this season. But uh, it's looking like Manor may still only be the bottom end of the, of the midfield at best, but 
that's probably good because they'll still probably snipe some points here and there. I just wonder when the sympathy with them will run out and when people will actually start judging them like an actual Formula One team these days. That's going to be fun to see. Now, again, hard not to talk about Bahrain without talking about the elimination qualifying. And oh joy. Yeah, it was back. We all know why the teams couldn't agree on the solution, so they had to keep the new system in place for at least another round, and we got it for Bahrain. And i got to be honest here, King. Like, besides maybe Q2 being a complete joke, I, th- I think it was better second time round. Uh, I mean, the stands better the second time round would sit for me would be like it went from a one out of ten to a one point five out of ten. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. Ouch. I was trying. I was trying to be the optimistic one for once, King. Stop pissing on my bonfire. <laughs> but, this uh, is a bit like yeah. comparing Troll Two with the room. Yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah, it's 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 it wasn't much better if I'm honest. Like it, <laughs> Q one wasn't wasn't ever that bad in the first place, but it was just there really. Q two was a joke. There was two hot laps in the final six and a half minutes of Q two. Wow. Hulkenberg set a last minute lap to actually knock Grosjean out and into Q two, and as as Grosjean admitted. Um, on the evening of Saturday, he said he was hoping Hulkenberg would beat him so that so that basically Grosjean would be knocked down into ninth place and hence actually get a free tire choice as to what to start the race on the following day. Because as I, as I suspected would happen, teams have realized, hmm, P9 and an open tire choice is probably better than even being on P7 a row ahead mm. with you know, being locked into your Q2 qualifying tire, which is obviously going to be the softest one on the board because that's what everybody is doing in qualifying. There's no alternate tires like we got in the old format where some of the faster teams might save a set or try and save two sets before Q3 would start because they were that confident they were able to get in. That's not happened this year. This year, they're all getting on the softest tire available, which so far has been a super soft tire. They've all done that so far this season, and Grosjean was actually rooting for himself to be eliminated. <laughs> when that is a thing, you know your format is a buster. Yeah, and, it seems counterproductive, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like that, that should never be a thing. You should never be cheering for another driver to beat you. And that's what happened. Like, like everybody was 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 safe or they acknowledged they were not going to get time to do a second run. So they they acknowledged the fact they were out. Hulkenberg set a lap right at the end to take himself into Q3 for no good reason. While Valtteri Bottas did a hot lap at the end for even less of a good reason because he was already in. I, I, I guess that's just Williams being Williams more than anything else. Any herpaderp of Formula One teams at this point. But uh, like King, we got a hot lap battle at the end in Q3, but it was with four minutes to go. Yeah, it was with four minutes to go. And uh, I mean, the battle in itself was great. But it still had, you know, the lack of a climax when the clock ran out. Yeah, I mean, there was no clock-related climax. I mean, the problem, I think, with a lot of this is because given the nature of having to do two times involves, obviously, refueling a car, putting on a new set of tires, and doing five laps. Obviously, like, obviously you're doing two out laps, um, two hot laps, and then an in-lap in between, obviously. That's looking at about seven and a half to nine minutes, depending on the track. Um, Bahrain was about was a, about a ninety second lap, so you can roughly work out it was going to take about eight nine minutes to get two runs in. By that point, half the field's already been knocked out. 
So it's effectively one shot qualifying for half the field, unless you're really quick, basically. Um, so yeah, this format is definitely a buster. Like we could tell it's, it just doesn't work. And again, the battle itself at the end was great, but that's not because of the format. That was because of the nature of Mercedes being Mercedes and Ferrari being Ferrari more than I think anything else. And yeah, King, it's got to go. But I feel like the FIA want to try and save some face here by either not bringing back last year's format or basically giving us an entirely new format. And I don't think that's going to work either, King. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say it's it's basically the FIA and FOM want to put their foot down to the teams and show that they are the ones who have regulatory power, not them. So basically, the proposal for the next race, they want to revert to last year's format, but with, uh, with two-lap aggregates. So basically, the guy with pole has the two fastest, like, the two fastest laps in Q3. King, why do we need aggregate qualifying? We don't. We don't. Like, <laughs> we don't. Uh, 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 it, it, I basically used the point where I said before, it's where the FIA and FOM are trying to prove that they have the regulatory strength, not the teams. Yeah, it seems like... To me, like Will Buxton put it quite well on Twitter where he said, this is not a genuine improvement at the show. This is coming across more like a tug of war over who wears the trousers in F1's relationship. So, Johnson, are you thoroughly whipped by the FIA here? Or do we need do we need aggregate qualifying? Uh, I, I feel like this is a, a cop-out by the FIA to try and basically say, oh, we know better than you do, basically. And... Um, yeah well it's quite funny on the same weekend the the wwe said yeah we know better than the fans roman reigns is your new champion deal with it very similar here in the fia we know better than you teams get used to it because we have the power we're fed up of you thinking you had any and it's once again it's you know as will buxton said very correctly on his on his blog he he talked about this he said uh it's a battle for control between um the fia the fom and the teams more fool us for believing it was about us because it's not and uh, an alternative suggestion that was put forward i think it was by buxton uh, i might be proven wrong on this um was sort of like uh i mean first up aggregate qualifying no we don't need it literally none of the solutions that have come forward in 2016 so far why we didn't need it qualifying was pretty much fine as it was anyway qualifying races no just get out of here with that sort of stuff it's just nonsense it's it's always to desperately try and shake up the order which the irony being the tire regulations have shaken up the races enough anyway you know because the problem was that by five laps in you kind of knew how a race would finish barring mechanical failures or instance so the tire regulations have shaken that up you now genuinely don't know there's all sorts of strategies playing out so qualifying doesn't really need to be this massive sort of lottery draw of randomness and ballast and reversing the grid and all this other stuff because the show he does with jazz hands um but the best idea i've actually seen put forward if you really want to shake up qualifying is this basically it's like one shot qualifying uh, except the uh, it's very similar actually to how NASCAR kind of does it in a way. Um, although practice speed set the order that the cards go out over there, this idea had a random draw. So literally you, you 
put everyone in a hat. Whoever number draws first goes out first. And whoever goes out, the next car then goes out for their outlap as the previous car is starting their flyer. And you literally get one hot lap. That's it. Uh, a couple of other tweaks, you know, free tire choice, no fuel limit. So you can literally crank the engines up to over a thousand horsepower, however much you can squeeze out. They're in qualifying trips, trims, so let them go for it. Um, I actually don't think that's that's too bad an idea. The basic, the, the premise being, you know, do you lay it all on the line for that lap that will net your pole, or do you are you a little bit more conservative because you've only got that one shot? You make a mistake on that one, that's it. You know, and it also guarantees every car and every driver a bit of TV time because there's only one car on the track at the time. There you go. So everyone from the manners through to the mercs get at least one lap of TV time. So ultimately, if you, if you really want to shake up qualifying, I like that format the most. But ultimately, King's right. This is just a big, you know, this is it's like uh, it's like Captain America and Iron Man. You know, we're we're basically not in. Actually, this is more like uh, Alien versus Predator. Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> pretty much yeah that's that's the best analogy i've heard for it since it started and i don't think buxton's idea is a bad one i just feel like again you'd be robbing ourselves of a climax potentially if you randomized who went out on track hmm. um for example you could you could easily get both mercs in the top three or four coming out of the track and then qualifying's effectively over because we now are strong there are as cars but king like why not just go back to last year? Like, like I don't like again. I think nothing was wrong with it. Form, yeah, like the 2015 format was just really good, and I know you you kind of like was thinking about an a, a alternate qualifying format of your own. So if you want to get that out there, King, feel free. Power to the people and all that. <laughs> I mean, uh, like I can't. I'm I'm still kind of you know thinking about like the specifics of how everything would work, but basically. I have two like plans in my head where one would be both are lottery style systems. So Johnson might like might not like this for the the because it's for the quote unquote show, but I think it would actually mix things up and makes things interesting and you know make people actually want to drive their cars in Q3. Go on. So plan A, which I call like the hundred lottery ticket system, where basically it's where in Q3 you're racing for tickets, not your actual spot on the grid. So the guy who finishes with the fastest time gets 25 tickets and it goes down from 25 to 18, 14, 12, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, and end at one ticket for the guy who finishes in 10th. To calculate the probabilities of that system is fairly easy because it's only 100 tickets. So the guy who finishes on pole has a 25% chance of starting on pole. Oh, so you're making it a system very much like the NBA draft logic. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Except, except using make it as simple as possible. Yeah, like obviously you would need to simplify that down for the fans, but basically in in layman's terms, pole doesn't necessarily get you pole. It gives you the best chance of getting pole mm. position because yeah. positions can still move up and down a few spots depending on how the lottery turns out. Yeah. Not bad, not bad. But still not as good as last year. <laughs> back last year. <laughs> I think what we're finding out is that literally this was a case of if it ain't broke, for God's sake, don't fix it. 
This, well, it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. Like I mentioned, AJ, like it's a situation where it's it's like I think the teams genuinely do want to improve the show for what it's worth, mm. but I can't help but shake the feeling that they, they don't want to open Pandora's box on technical regulations in order to do it. Pretty much. Hence... Hence why we've gone through this era of gimmick changes to try and enhance the show because no team wants to give up its slice of the pie in terms of performance. No, that's the big uh, problem. Like, I, I don't doubt that people like Toto Wolf are genuine when they say they've, that they want to improve the show. They want people because they understand if no one's watching, they've not got any value to offer investors or advertisers or anything. So the, the sport kind of dies on its ass if no one's watching it. So but ultimately, if you pitch an idea to them, their first thought is, well, how's that going to affect our chances of winning negatively? Mm-hmm. Nope, we're not having it. So that's fair enough. It's self-preservation. If you've spent that much money, especially if you're Merc, if you're the kings of the hill, any idea that comes along and says, well, the first thing we're going to do is going to screw you out of potential wins and potential championships for the show. And Total War's going to go, no, I'm not that obliged to the show to do that. I'm not prepared to let Mercedes fall on its sword just to make things more entertaining. Not mm-hmm. when my MO is to win world championships. So it's inevitable. Speaking of overhype and whatnot, I want to move this on a little quick. I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about Lewis Hamilton. Um, he limped, He had a car. It was damaged, obviously, by the Bottas incident. He limped home in third, finished about half a minute behind Rosberg, did, but for obvious reasons, his car was damaged. And I think. I think for the second round in a row, it was more of a damage limitation job from Hamilton. He did a pretty good job of that, given, again, he's only really dropped. What was it? I think 13, 16 points to Rosberg after the opening two rounds, um, which again, I think Hamilton will take given his confidence in the past of being able to reel him in. Um, and again, given that the Hamilton's won 10 races in a row for the last two seasons and whatnot, but it's, it's, it's changed. Because I think Hamilton has gotten a lot of talk in the press the last few days. Now, I don't know how much of this is down to places like Sky, desperate to try and drum up some rivalry talk, um, given how the season's gone so far. And again, I don't think I don't think the media in general take Rosberg as quite the threat that they did a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, Rosberg's now won five straight. Um, Hamilton's had a five had a five, had a five race run in 2014 as well. Where he won five in a row. He's now matched that. Now Lewis Hamilton said in the press the day after the race that he didn't he didn't count it as five. He counted it only as two um, because of the new season starting and he's more focused on the 16 point uh, deficit he's got to Rosberg. King is Hamilton splitting some hairs here? Uh, yeah, I'd say he's splitting hairs because obviously Rosberg's format end of last year certainly carried over to next year and i it seems like he's not splitting hairs to make himself look good he's splitting hairs to make himself feel more confident <laughs> but then then i'm going into this whole psychology mind games thing. yeah and I, I, honestly i'm trying to avoid that that crap because quite frankly like i don't want to turn into david brabham on sky f1's midweek <laughs> report last year after japan where he was saying like i don't think rosberg has the mental game to be world champion like what the hell does that even mean like like i've said this before like why do we pretend we're psychologists when, mm. when we're not when it comes to these things and again there's a million different ways you can read you can read what what Hamilton said in terms of interpretation. I know friend of the show, CNN, who where was was all in on the well. Rosberg's, you know, he's hating on Rosberg's streak, and then I, I don't think he, I don't think it's that. I think I, I think Hamilton's clearly trying to put himself 
mm. in, in in a particular mindset or he feels like ah oh, it's not really five it's only two because the last three of last season didn't matter because as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago we knew Hamilton phoned in the last three rounds anyway so it's consistent to that I mean Hamilton gave up three races in that in his mind he didn't really care about anyway so you know, it would make sense that he doesn't count them in, uh, against himself in, in that run against Rosberg. So that's one thing. On the other end, there was also a story that The Sun came out with a couple of days ago where they were talking about Hamilton smoking a shisha pipe. Um, on, I, think it was on his, I think it was on his Snapchat account. I really should follow that thing because it seems like all the juicy stuff is on Snapchat these days. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, he was caught smoking a shisha pipe, and of course, and of course, the sun would obviously go in on that, like they did with Michael Phelps, for example, when he was caught smoking that bong. And of course, people are going to jump all over this king. But like, is Hamilton getting an unfair rap in the press now? Uh, I'd say unfair for an F one driver, yes. Unfair for a celebrity, no. That's probably the best way I've heard it described since it happened. I mean, Johnson, have you got to take... It just feels to me like more... It feels like this story has gone on over and over with Lewis Hamilton. I think maybe people are trying to make more of a deal of it now that he's not winning. I think when you're winning... Uh, you know, people are prepared to let things go. I mean, back in the day, uh, I've read stories of some of the stuff that drivers would get up into in the, up to in the 1970s, especially likes of James Hunt and that, that the journalists, because they were world champions, because they were such famous people and they were kind of in there with the drivers, they were in their sort of social circles, they'd just turn a blind eye to. They'd be like, you know what? Guy's world champion. He's making F1 a popular sport. We can let slide if we've seen him, you know, do you know play around with strange substances or do this mm-hmm. or that or cheat or someone or whatever so i don't know i think with hamilton it's just become i think the media have worked out that there is an industry of hamilton hating um so yes. uh, and now that he's not winning i think people are quick to jump on stuff like this to go oh well he's clearly distracted now with the distractions of fame and celebrity culture and he's you know he's lost his focus he's lost his game you know <sighs> i don't know i don't really i think because we're race you know we're in the racing media and we're race fans ultimately we don't really care about the peripheral stuff we just look at what they do on the track and see yeah, yeah. you know i mean i think we're in a celebrity culture now where everybody's fighting for a bit of attention i mean if all else fails kim kardashian will get her tits out these days um, <laughs> and use empowerment of women as an excuse that's the kind of culture we live in these days mm. and um I've said it before. I think F1 has a generational problem when it comes to appealing to younger fans and Hamilton, like King, how good does our Drake Beef episode on Hamilton look now? Like we nailed Fantastic. it. Yeah. Home <laughs> run, baby. We nailed it two weeks in advance. And I'm like, it's gotten to a point where people are telling me, Oh, but Dre James Hunt would have been, we was loved in the seventies. And I'm like, dude, it's not the seventies anymore. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's the thing with, with using James Hunt as a comparison doesn't yeah. hold up dude no he it was, doesn't yeah it doesn't hold up it was a different era as i said journalists were okay with turning a blind eye technically i think james hunt got away with far worse than anything that has been reported on lewis hamilton so exactly as i say just back in those I, days I wanna, journos yeah. were more keen to turn a blind eye because he's james hunt yeah because i, I want to say as well i know that's a friend of the show that listens that's mild shout out to you you know he's a patron because I don't want to alienate him. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with him, but I'm just saying it's, it's, an, it's an easy comparison because I'm saying like, oh, well, Hamilton's getting unfair compared to what James Hunt was going through. Hunt was grew up in the 70s as a racing driver. The 70s, you could get away with just about everything. 
from this... drink to fornication to pedophilia in the case of it being, and, and, and you know, I don't want to make an extreme example out of it, but that's the case. We, we as we've now worked out with guys like Jimmy Savile and whatnot that. You could get away with just about anything in that period of time. The world has changed in the last 50 years. I mean, they once made a documentary on, uh, it was 1976 when James Hunt won the World Championship, yeah. wasn't it? Because yeah. Barry Sheen won the World Championship for uh, well, what is now MotoGP in the same year. And there's a documentary on it called When Playboys Ruled the World. Says a lot. Yeah. That was the era we were in. Coming off the swinging, swinging 60s, that was it. So I just, exactly. as he said, you're right. You can't compare the eras. You can't compare, and for me, like people are saying, oh, people just, oh, just leave Hamilton alone. Like you know, Hamilton get, you know, he's just, he's just having a good time and enjoying life. And I'm like, people, this is what you wanted. You wanted a crossover star. Absolutely. We now have one in Lewis Hamilton. Hamilton has now reached that level where mainstream media outlets like the Sun are reporting his every move. Mm -hmm. He's made it. He's there. He, we, we like F1 needs a guy like Hamilton. I said it on the Dre brief. It needs a dude like this because Hamilton could be the bridge for new fans. He could be the bridge for the younger generation that F1 so desperately lacks as a sport in general. Yep. Unfortunately, the downside of that is that he's not going to get a fair rap anymore. It's just like you, it's impossible for sports stars to get. There is a no fair longer game a middle with, ground with the media. Like, like I'll give you a couple of examples. Like ESPN had this awful reputation just like last year that it was the entity that would always talk about LeBron James every single move from <laughs> when he joined Cleveland to the second time to when he was the bad boy in for, for Miami when he joined the Heat with Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade. Like all the jokes was, oh, you were talking about LeBron. What is like what's LeBron's opinion on this? And this year in the NBA it's been but are they better than the 95-96 Bulls because Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors are close to breaking Michael Jordan's all-time record of the 96 Bulls and 73 wins or 72 wins in a season, I should say. Mm. So it's it's that kind of thing where once you get to that level, the media are going to obsess about you because you're easy money. Yeah. And and Lewis Hamilton is now in that ballpark where his every move will be reported. And I think it's fair for people to re to react like this because we've never had a guy like Lewis Hamilton in Formula One until now. Because when Michael Schumacher was dominating, one, he was very personal. He kept his personal life very private, yep. first of all. And two, we didn't have social media back then. Like, like it's not what it is now where, where social media is a juggernaut that shapes our every lives. It's not like that anymore. It's Hamilton's the first real Formula One superstar in today's modern day media, like Sebastian Vettel could have easily been that guy, but he again, deliberately shuns the limelight. Hamilton embraces it. So for me, King, it's just kind of an inevitable downside of the star that Lewis Hamilton has become. At least that's all. At least that's my take on it. Mm. Yeah. Because once you put yourself out there, you're open to almost anything like, Oh, do I even bring up Abby Wamba? <laughs> <laughs> You brought it on yourself, mate. You brought yeah, it on yourself. Amy, yeah, Amy went back admitting that, you know, she she once did coke as well as smoking weed during her professional career. Um, again, it's easy to say now you've retired and whatnot, and, you know, you, you, can, just, you can just come out <laughs> and, and say whatever. She, and she was legally obliged to do so. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things. I don't think anyone's going to look at Amy any less for that really because because Amy Wambach doesn't really give much of a shit anymore oh god that's another pound that's another pound for the swear jar hey. uh, <laughs> but 
But everyone loved the headlines that Abby Wambach admits to using cocaine and marijuana without the little tagline 10 years ago. Yeah, it, it doesn't quite sound quite as cool in 2006, does it? Uh, <laughs> but um, it's one of those situations where, again, when you're a megastar, your every move will be judged. The revolution will be televised. So, mm. you know, that's just like, I, I think that's something that I think a lot of fans just haven't, really embraced or acknowledged that you know lewis being the first real superstar of f1 is just you know there's going to be drawbacks that come to that and then unfortunately the media get their meal tickets off of lewis hamilton news so once you open your eyes and realize that that you know you'll embrace it much more it's just the natural you know entity of how the media is speaking of the media uh the TV ratings for were very interesting regarding Formula One. Now, I haven't got the exact numbers, so King, feel free to correct me on this where I where, where, I, where you need to. But I know roughly, I think it was something like roughly 150,000 watched the race on Sky. Yeah. Um, but apparently, according to the time checks, about 200,000 had turned off by the end of the opening lap. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so around roughly 200,000 fans tuned off after Rosberg was leading through the open lap because that timestamp was done at five minutes past the hour. So roughly lap two, roughly lap two to three. Now, I don't want to completely blame Sky for this because Manchester United versus Everton kicked off at 4 p.m. that afternoon. So maybe people just watched. Uh, maybe people have just watched the start of the F1 and switched to the football. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But the fact that the viewership continued to go down um, towards the end of the race is interesting. Um, whereas Channel 4 obviously got more viewers. I think they averaged 2.7 over there, 2.7 million over their broadcast. 2.7 people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because no, yeah, nobody watches Channel Four anymore. It's too, it's, it's too busy. It's too busy hipstering it up with Steve Jones presenting sex box these days. Of course, really. We've got to love our BBC. Yeah. Our BBC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, like Channel Four's ratings are forty percent down on what the BBC was managing this time last year, which is not a good. This is not a good look at all. But what was interesting was, despite them averaging two point seven million viewers across across the race, King it peaked when Rosberg actually won, um, which is kind of weird because you normally think, well, if you take the context of Bahrain, Rosberg had the race won pretty much from turn one. So the fact that the viewership peaked at the end, is, uh, whereas Sky's lowest point was at the end, is very weird indeed, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's very weird. It's like... It seems like casual viewers are doing what normally the hardcore viewers are actually interested in the fight outside the lead, where it seems like the hardcore viewers who actually bought Sky decided, oh, Rosberg has won this, let me not watch. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very, very intriguing. But um, yeah, it's very, just, just before I bring that up as well, because I think it's an interesting note to, to, to pay a mention to, uh, Sky getting less than a million viewers for its broadcast right now in an era where we know they're going to be the exclusive home of Formula One in less than three years' time is uh, very eye-opening indeed. I know, gonna, I know they're going to be sharing a lot of their content out and I know they're going to be giving away certain races for free, but even so, that's certainly eyebrow raising that less than a million people are actively watching Sky's product at the moment, which 
can't be good. Like, like how can the executives be looking there and saying, "Oh, what was the ratings like? What we what we didn't even crack a million? Yeah, like jeez. <laughs> and like, with sponsors that's... coming on board into Formula One deliberately saying, "You know what? We're looking for the maximum exposure possible." And you're not going to get it with under a million views. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm actually going to look up briefly the uh, or try and compare it to other series that will or are currently on free to air in this country and look likely to stay there. Like the British Touring Car Championship is effectively free to air on ITV4. So I'm going to see if I can find some viewing figures for that. See how they hold up. So there is a real chance yeah, that we'll Formula One might become a niche sport in this country. Yeah, and again, 2.7 for Channel 4 for their first live Grand Prix is not that great either. When we said when BBC were averaging 4 to 5 mil when they had the coverage this time last year. Now, again, I want to, again, as Johnson very rightly alluded to, I think a lot of people very much swear by the BBC because it's government owned and, and you know, it's the, it's the institution and, you know, turn your nose up, snooty talk here, etc. But um, yeah, it's, it's intriguing that the ratings are so far down, which is a shame because we haven't really talked about it on the podcast so far. But I've really liked Channel 4's coverage, King. <laughs> oh, well, obviously, being here in America, I haven't watched Channel 4. Right. I've, seen, I've seen a couple of their segments, and I thought they were pretty slick. They were pretty, like, there was definitely pr- production quality invested into that. Yeah, it's it's. I don't want to say it's the same as the BBC because it's not. But at the same time, they're not half ass in this. They're really not. And like some of the segments they've done have been very very good. I know Lee McKenzie's a, a tremendous interviewer um, for F1. She's done great work with just about everybody. She gets the best out of everybody out there on the grid. But some of the segments she was producing, like the one about the qualifying debacle, was great. I like the Channel Four keep mentioning tweets. They always get them on the broadcast. They, they are very open with Q and As. I love their witty hashtags they have in between commercial breaks. I think that's a that's a very nice little touch. Um, like for example, like it, during Bahrain's qualifying the hashtag at the first commercial break was who is in charge which i think everybody seemed to get a little kick out of um which was which was kind of cool um so little things like that definitely help it's refreshing the crew's got a great flow steve jones i think has done a very solid job as lead anchor um he surprised me at how good he has been um he's witty he's he's funny he you know he, he could he can hold his own in a conversation he doesn't mind you know, having a little joke and trying to and trying to move the needle a little bit. So I've liked Channel 4's coverage so far very much, and I'll definitely be sticking with them throughout the season. But uh, Johnson, you got any you got any two cents on this from what you've seen on Channel Four so far, real quick? I like the fact that it appears they've kind of balanced the they they know they have to have credibility as a as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. They can't they have to know what they're talking about because Formula One fans generally, even the more casual ones, know what they're talking about. They know what they're watching, and they want to be informed. They don't want to be talked down to. No, no one ever wants to be talked down to while watching sport, even if you even if you don't really know what's going on. Uh, which is why I'm sometimes reticent of broadcasters trying too hard to pander to casuals because that means you just end up patronising or condescending the people who actually know what's going on. So I think what Channel 4 have done well is balance the uh, need to appeal to the hardcore. They know what they're talking about. They have the credibility. They have the chops. They have the chutzpah to really deal with it. But they've also got that entertaining element. They've kind of mixed things up. They know things over on the BBC got a little bit stale. They know things on Sky are pretty safe. They're secure over there. They know what they're doing. So Channel 4, no, they've got a, 
you know, Channel 4 are kind of known as the alternative TV channel in this country. You know, you've got BBC yeah, and ITV yeah. who are the main competitors. Channel 4 are sort of the, the, uh, the, 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 the runty, yeah, the hipster uh, over in the corner, deliberately trying to do things a little bit differently. And I remember when they did the Paralympics a few years back, they deliberately yeah. went for a kind of fresh, slightly different, not edgier as such, but um, a slightly more contemporary approach. And it really works. So I like it so far. I like the fact there's a real lack of pretension about it. There's a real refreshing air to it. It's, it's, it's good overall. I like it. Yeah, I can see. And it's worth mentioning, like like Johnson said, they actually won national awards for their Paralympic coverage um, back in 2012. And if it wasn't for that, we would not have gotten the phenomenal last leg that uh, one of the best TV shows in this country, quite frankly, hosted by Adam Hills, Alex Brooker and uh, Josh Widdicombe. Uh, so if you haven't watched the last leg, please do. It's a great show. But um, if it wasn't for the Paralympic coverage, you would never have gotten that show, which, which is basically the closest thing we're going to get in this country to, to John Oliver's last week tonight, one of my favorite Pro, um, programs in general so yeah it's one of those things where channel 4 have done a great job so far in, in invert and tangent there how, how cool are we um <laughs> so well before we move on to the last stuff and the more funny stuff from from bahrain the gpda has has again caught a little bit more attention in the last week or so king I heard today on autosport they had an interview with alex Wirtz, who's obviously head of the gpda um Obviously, a lot of it based on the statement they made last week. What was what what was the key takeouts from that more than anything else? Because there were some very interesting things dropped in there. Uh, I would say the key things from the GPDA survey were were that the GPDA might have ulterior motives. Where it where it might. seemingly. <laughs> yes, I I I want to be you know as impartial as possible here, <laughs> where where the GPDA they they don't clearly state that every F1 driver is not a member, and I would say what twenty five percent of F1 drivers at the least are not members of the GPDA, mm. and they don't disclose this to the public, and they don't even make their membership. Their, their membership list to, available to the public, which is a bit sketchy when you're when your hashtag is hashtag racing united <laughs> when not even all the drivers are united under the Grand Prix Driver Association banner. Yeah. So some information from the interview which I which I did not know about beforehand. And thanks to King for sharing them in our, our Twitter DM conversation that we always have. The GPDA membership fee, It's a, if you're a reserve driver, it costs 1,000 euros to get in. If you're a race driver, it's 2,000 euros plus 200 euros per point scored. I don't know if that's, is that for the previous calendar year, King, or is that just career-wise? Because that must be expensive uh, if you name Sebastian. No. <laughs> uh, previous calendar year, it's yeah. an annual fee. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, okay, so out of the current membership now, like, like Alex Works didn't know off the top of his head how many members are in the gpda he tried to have some emails to chase it up and you know, go back and forth but they decided not to actually publish the actual number which is a little bit of a eyebrow raiser to say the least we do know that lewis hamilton felipe massa valtteri bottas nico holkenberg and max verstappen are not members and as we know membership is not obligatory you don't have to join if you're an f1 driver of course but it is as as they quite rightly mentioned motorsport a little bit fishy that, you know, the GPDA stated mission of informing fans and, you know, they want to keep the fans knowledge at the forefront. 
but they're not willing to disclose who's in and who isn't in their little club. Um, I know Nicky Louder as well was one of those guys that was very damning of the whole thing. Um, he said, and I quote, Mr. Wirtz got together and spoke in the name of all the drivers. It's all bullshit. This is Wirtz alone. He was the master of this. We had nothing to do with it. Oh, boy. It's... <laughs> it's Thanks, Nicky. You added another pound to my swear jar. Um, boss. Um, but in any case, it's. I think at this point, King, it's fair to ask the question of whether they have ulterior motives or not, because some of these, given their mission statement, doesn't quite add up, you know? Yeah, and uh, also in the interview I didn't post in the chat, uh, Alexander Worth's became chairman of GPDA the weekend of that fateful Japanese Grand Prix where Jules had his accident. He, right. he was, he was convinced by the the drivers to become chairman in a meeting before the accident, but obviously the accident probably gave him, mm. gave him a check to do things that he wouldn't necessarily have been able to do. Like if I had to use an analog, like, uh, here in the U.S., the Patriot Act wouldn't have been a thing if 9-11 didn't happen. Right, so it kind of like accelerated the process, you would say, yeah. more than anything else, because Bianchi had that accident, obviously. And again, drivers are going to come together. They're going to talk, given one of their own, just, you know, not that we not that we knew it at the time, died as a result of an accident. Mm-hmm. But um, that must have just accelerated the process somewhat as, as a catalyst um, for change and whatnot. And... He, again, Nicky Lauda straight up said it. Like he reckons words is bullshitting. Uh, oh, for God's sake! <laughs> That's five pound in the Great Ormond Street swear jar. Uh, this, this is going to get expensive by the time the end of the year rolls around. Clearly, um, <laughs> but it it's certainly eyebrow raising stuff, Johnson. And like I said, I think it's fair at this point to ask what the real motives of the GPDA are. Like, where are you on the fence on this one? Like, do you feel like the drivers are definitely angling to have more in the say of what F1's run? Because I think a guy that was very vocal about this to me was Sebastian Vettel this past weekend. He's openly called, you know, the new system format changes, a four-letter word beginning with S. Um, While at the same time, he's also said, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to run anything around here and whatnot, but at the same time, we've come out and made this statement. It's almost like Vettel is being a politician by trying to not be a politician. Um, so, Johnson, where do you stand in all this? Uh, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Just a little yeah. bit. I mean, politics is always a thing in motorsport. It's just a thing we can't get away from in life anyway, from the workplace to mm. sport to, to wherever. To In fact, a lot of times, sport features more politics than 10 Downing Street, uh, the way it's going. And, like, it's it's very interesting. I think the whole... The part about um, the fact that he didn't actually know how many of the current Formula 1 drivers were members of the GPDA, that was a little bit interesting. It's almost felt to me, especially when we, he started the year with the big statements about the halo and cockpit protection, saying everyone is unanimous about this and everyone's united. 
And then he reveals he doesn't actually know how many people, how many current drivers are on the GPDA. And it transpires mm-hmm. that quite a few aren't. There are quite a few big names who are not members. And at it least says half a dozen. Ex- exactly, at least half a dozen. And it's very interesting how some of those, particularly Hamilton and Hulkenberg, were guys who were critical of cockpit protection or were critical of the halo. So this mm. unanimous stance, I just, I feel like Alex Wurtz has made some very, very big statements to start the year. And it's almost now coming out that he, it hasn't been able to back them up. And now people are going, well, why would you make those statements? There's got to be a reason for this. So I don't know. This is a messy one. I think, I think Eccleston's playing a dangerous game, shooting so hard on them, uh, firing back. It's obviously a, a power game at this point. Uh, Eccleston is so entrenched in the sport that literally it's, he's even if he does retire he's still going to have a lot of control over the product so this is just a this is a bit of a power struggle playing out in front of us one thing i was surprised about alex words in the interview said that out of like all the people that interact to bernie was probably the most responsive like he said that bernie always replied to any question that he had or any like he always gave them an answer presumably even if that answer was the one they didn't want to hear yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's that's very interesting indeed that uh bernie was an open book even if the book bit back um so to speak but uh yeah king i think we need frank underwood to settle all this quite frankly (laughs) (laughs) i I would i would say we should get ready for a summer of our discontent (laughs) (laughs) next thing you know next thing you know lewis hamilton will train between now and china uh (laughs) But um, yeah, so one more thing I want to talk about from Formula One, and that's and that's the McLaren account, which was uh, McLaren had a very eventful weekend to say the least. Uh, we rocked up in Bahrain on Thursday. We got the press conference talk and whatnot, and the news came through on Thursday morning that Fernando Alonso had failed a medical. Turns out he was more hurt from that Australia accident than we thought, which, again, is almost not really surprising in hindsight, given how friggin' brutal it was. Um, obviously, driving over a car's back at 190 miles an hour could hurt a dude. Who knew? Um, but uh, it turns out he had a cracked rib and I think some knee pain as well. And obviously, at the risk of him not driving, yeah, FAA you know, said, nope, you're not racing this weekend. And McLaren seemingly weren't, too keen on this king because i know they said to ron dennis uh, ron dennis uh, openly admitted that they were trying to have him re-examine so he could race on saturday uh so race on saturday and sunday basically despite the failed medical on the thursday i mean oh, i i just want to just pull out the american sports analogies again mm. where it's like where it's like a drew bledsoe for a tom brady or or a george pip for lou Gehrig. once you put the new guy in there and he's incredible do you really want to put the old guy back in there yeah, it's 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 a funny situation that, that, that that's developing and I, I, i'm very glad you made that because i made that exactly same analogy damn you king but um yeah being a patriot fan was kind of a given really but uh yeah it's a very fair comparison for those who don't know what, what we're talking about drew bledsoe was the new england Patriots starting quarterback he took a big hit in a jets game he was out injured tom brady the backup who they just drafted who was i think the fourth quarterback on the roster he started the rest of the game. He became the starter, and then and then he won three championships with them in the space of four years, and became 
arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. So it's a situation where we could see something very similar here at McLaren where Fernando could not race and Stoffel Van Dorn obviously had a great debut weekend, um, qualified strong in 12th place. Out I think he out-qualified Jensen Button on the day. He did. he did. He did indeed. And then he would go on to finish in the points uh, in, in 10th place and it was, would score McLaren's first point of the year. Um, meanwhile, King Fernando Alonso and Johnny Herbert came to loggerheads, which was very, very funny indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like in an article written by Johnny Herbert on SkySports.com, Johnny Herbert said that Fernando Fernando Alonso shouldn't come back; he should retire. <laughs> and of course, but, <laughs> yeah, go yeah, but yeah, of, of course, given that Fernando is a very fine, I don't think he took that too well. <laughs> <laughs> he did not take that well at all. He did not take that well at if, all. If, if you want, to, if you want, if you're one of the four people that has not seen the video of this, it was right before qualifying. Alonso was walking past in the paddock where he could see Johnny Herbert with Rachel Brooks on Sky and Sky Sports TV, and live in front of the camera, he walks up, shakes Johnny Herbert's hand, and says, "You're a commentator because you were not good enough to be world champion." And I'm just sitting there thinking. The shade, the shade being thrown is the absolute ridiculous. sass is real. It was almost like one of those WWE backstage segments, wasn't it? You know, where someone's yeah. being interviewed by like Renee Young, and then someone just walks up and then just throws the shade and then just walks off again. It was amazing, and I think everyone was just oh. like, "Yes, Fernando," because I mean, we can all speculate on his career, but ultimately, if he's sitting there having like fellow, you know, he's he's kind of uh, peers, if you will, just saying, "Oh, he's rubbish now. He should just retire." You're gonna sit there and go. No, screw you. You're not going to tell me what uh, when I should end my career. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's a bit like of a bit, you know, the fallacy of, of being a meritocracy where it's like, if you fail, it's definitely your fault. It's not, it's not anyone else's problem. It's mm. your fault. When Alonso's clearly like, no, it's not my fault why I'm doing so poorly right now. Exactly, and you know, Alonso's put a brave face on it, but I think it's fair to say at this point that the McLaren move has not worked and probably will not work um, by the time. Well, it's I think all you can hear the done. clock ticking, can't he? Yes, I mean, I'm going to be real with you here, gentlemen. I agree with Johnny Herbert. I, I, I genuinely Shh, don't agree say that too loudly. I, I, I don't know. I might have the Spanish audience come after me. Um, they might, they might go blackface on me. Like they did with Hamilton in 2008, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but in any case, I honestly, I agree with Johnny Herbert. I know the jokes that Alonso, you know, the, the, the shade being thrown was very funny, but I can't lie. I think Herbert made some very valid points. I hmm. feel that the McLaren move has not worked out. It probably will not work out. Maybe by some miracle, McLaren will get back up there, maybe in year three. But I can't help but shake the feeling that Alonso's kind of run out of options at this point. Like, we know that Merckx have got pretty much the perfect setup. Obviously, he can't go back to Ferrari, even if Raikkonen goes at the end of the season anyway. Williams aren't competitive enough. Haas are going full American alongside Grosjean pretty much. Like, McLaren was pretty much the only option on paper. And even then, it was a hellacious gamble because we knew they were leaving Mercedes power anyway and obviously developing with this Honda relationship. And 
he's got nothing more to gain really by being with McLaren either because they're not good enough yet. And and there's going to be at least another year, I reckon, before they could even be competitive. So for me, King, I feel like, I feel like, like, I don't think it's Alonso's fault per se. No, not at all. But I feel like Alonso, the driver may not be finished, but Alonso, the career might be finished. Yeah, I'd definitely say that. Like, if Alonso wants to stay in Formula One, he definitely can. But if if he wants to be a title contender again, I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future at all. Well, it's it's going to be difficult, isn't it? Because which team would take him on at this point? I feel like at this point, his best shot is going to be moving to another midfield team, like a I don't know, like a Red Bull or something like that, or even a Haas or a Renault. You know, going back to Renault again. Um, you know, and hoping they come good, you know, developing them into a force. But as you've talked about, Dre, before, Alonso's not really about developing cars, is he? He's not really, he kind of rides off their shirt tail. So we know that McLaren, you know, they threw the Hail Mary with this lineup, didn't they? And the problem is, I think Honda have just not delivered. And, And on paper, it looked like a great move. You can't blame Alonso for this at all. In the same way that now we're praising Grosjean for making a move to Haas, when this time, when, when he announced the move last year, people were going, wait, I know Lotus have not been great these last few years. They're becoming a factory team next year and you're moving to a brand new startup team, which historically in the last years hasn't worked out. Of course, Mm. look at Grosjean now. He has played a blinder. And I think Alonso had every right to look at the McLaren move and go, you know what? This is a team with a huge history of success in the sport. They've never been away from the top of the, the pile for very long. They're going into this new arrangement with Honda, who have a lot of success around the world in motorsport. British Touring Car Championship Racing, IndyCar, um, uh, MotoGP, of course, you know, uh, motorcycle racing. And in Japan, they run hybrid engines in Super GT. And, you know, they have experience with these sort of power plants. So, you know, turbo engines in IndyCar. There was no reason why it should have gone wrong this badly. But the thing is, the, the problem is now, Honda are desperately trying to get the, the gains back, but they just can't catch up quick enough. They were so far behind the eight ball to begin with. Mm-hmm. <sighs> what do you do? They need some sort of magic bullet to suddenly make that thing as good as a Mercedes power plant. And without drastic rule changes, that's not really going to happen. So where does Alonso go from here? I don't know. But at this point, Fernando... I'd advise, you know, you've still got very spinning potential in you. I'm not going to tell you to retire because you're an old man and you're useless, which I think was probably the vibe he got from the Herbert article. And, you know, you've got every right to be defensive about your career. Uh, Race drivers are very proud people, of course. So, uh, I mean, at this point, Fernando, I'd get good at helping to develop a car because I don't think a top-tier team with a really strong car is going to take you on. So either try and help Honda get better or... You just get used to maybe go back to Renault and help them out. Maybe a career swan song at Renault. Well, that would be a third stint, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's 35 in July. Like, the, the the clock is ticking. Like if mm. I'm Fernando, I'm thinking get money, holler back because he's getting 30 million a year out of McLaren right now. And I wonder what McLaren's 30 million is paying for. If Van Dorn can walk into the car and score on its debut. Mm. So, I'd say cash those checks now before Ron Dennis gets any other bright ideas because <laughs> at the moment it, it's it's not a good look that Van Dorn can walk into the t- into the team and score points on his debut and hey, yeah. props to Stoffel fantastic opening weekend for him yeah, what a I'm not on the full 
I'm not on the full Will Buxton train of his generation defining. <laughs> but like, like he did, because God bless him, he loves Stoffel Van Dorn like an like adopted son. But to be but fair, have you seen him that up close for the last few years and he believes that? Then, I mean, who are we to doubt him? And what a great hit out first up. I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, he was the first driver or the first reserve driver to score points in Formula One since Sebastian Vettel in, help me out, Dre, was it 2007? Yes. 2007 for BMW, yeah. Yep. Indianapolis was the youngest point scorer in F1 until uh, Daniel Kvyat. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can see where people are coming from. I can see why people are excited for Stoffel, of course. He's a great driver. Proven record on, on, on the junior scene, of course. Very, very strong. And, you know, it, it, I can't blame people for getting excited. I'm not one of those dudes that naturally does that, but I can understand why people are. One more thing I want to talk about with Formula 1 before I move on, as I kind of missed it over. In qualifying, Lewis Hamilton set the fastest ever lap of the Bahrain International Circuit, a 129.5. Only the third lap ever under 90 seconds uh, of Bahrain in the first place. And it was, you've seen me on board. It is a beautiful lap. You can see Hamilton truly nailed the damn thing. His 51st career pole position, I feel pretty sure I'm right in saying that Schumacher and Senna will be in sight by the time this season's over because we all know Lewis's one lap speed is utterly insane. But King, I'm going to be very careful what I say here, but it's kind of annoying that as soon as that lap time was set, a certain pocket of fans started going crazy by making 2004 comparisons. And I'm just sitting here thinking, why? why? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, like, I, I don't know. It's... Like I could say, you know, obviously you're trying to make a reference back to the past, but I don't know why I bring it up now. Yeah, I said it on Twitter, and I'm not going to say the name of the person I was talking about this with because I don't want to escalate things any further. But I, I said that if you're in the moment of a lap record being broken in 2016 and all of a sudden you're bringing up 2004 i just feel like i feel like you're clutching your pearls out of insecurity over what the 2004 and the v10 era was now we're all roughly the same age i think johnson you're 24 am i right in saying you turned 24 last yes thanks for reminding me yeah thanks <laughs> uh, look it's my turn in august okay shut up very true uh, but yeah like like, like I'm twenty. Like you're twenty four, Adam. I'm twenty three. I think you're, I think you're twenty two. Yeah, I'm twenty two. I turned twenty three in August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our birthdays are like a week apart. Um, but yeah, like, like, so we're all roughly the same age. We all grew up seeing the V10s. Obviously, there's a like about the V10s. The look of the cars, the engine sounds, the ridiculous speed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But. I think there's this element of glamorizing the past because like the racing wasn't necessarily any better in 2004 either, especially given that I'd say at least three of those early 2000 years, they were completely dominated by Michael Schumacher. Like I will, I grew up a Schumacher fan King and in 2002, I was bored stiff <laughs> by having Schumacher completely dominate the 2002 season because he finished on the podium every single round. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I think that's where the defenders kind of feel justified. Like they they feel like because the racing has improved, people will forget about that time and right. only 
only make references back to just complain about it. Mm. It's yeah. Go on. I was just going to say, I think I've said this before, the whole nostalgia for the V10 era, for me, I think is born more at pure spectacle. And I I got this from when I was uh, last year, Lotus uh, F1 team did a a test stroke filming day at Brands Hatch. And alongside the 2015 car, they had a 1975 uh, Lotus uh, F1 car uh, with the Cosworth DFV Ford engine in it. You know, an incredibly iconic car and an incredible race car. Um, and it, the sound of it was just incredible. Um, and I, it just felt to me like, you know what? I think with the V10 era, suddenly the nostalgia makes sense because even if the racing wasn't great, I think most people just remember the sheer screaming of the engines and the noise and the look at the cars and go, wow, that was cool, wasn't it? Forgetting the fact that the races actually weren't that great. They just sort of enjoyed the raw spectacle of it, I suppose, which is, but I don't know, in 2055, when Formula One cars don't even have drivers and they're all electric engines, when Robo (laughs) Race has taken over the world and we're sitting there wondering which Lewis Hamilton drone is going to be the Nico Rosberg drone. We're all going to be nostalgic over 1.6 litre turbos. So there you go. Yeah. Skynet has become self-aware. They have, they have <laughs> yes. taken over the race, the racing world, robo race. But Hold uh, on. Let me just get my Tim Fall hat. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I should just say, I should just say that you really shouldn't have to defend your past to make people try to like it themselves try to make other people try to feel nostalgic because i know when i try to make references to the 1930s no one gets them at all or even feels interested in it in in them at all like when sebastian vettel won in malaysia last year it was almost a shot for shot remake of tanzio nuvolari getting alfa romeo a grand prix victory against the the world beater silver arrows at the nurburgring during the 1936 no 35 german grand prix but no one cares i hope all two of you enjoyed that reference now <laughs> This is the thing with King, right? This is like being on this show. He's an oracle. But he is. And I sort of feel a bit like I go to make a point, especially if I go with a little bit of like going, oh, well, Formula One has always been a little bit like this. I'm just waiting for King just to hear that. Uh, and I'm like, oh, no, he's going to bring out some knowledge from like the 1930s now. Hey, yeah, yeah. hey, it's like most people only care about the 1938 german grand prix because it's so much fun to make a dick joke about the guy who won <laughs> um why what was his name uh he was a british driver who surprisingly raced for mercedes-benz at the time and his name was richard seaman oh for the love of god <laughs> <laughs> i mean I'm no gonna, i'm mature that was I'm not just, funny I'm, at all i'm just gonna leave that one there <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously yeah yeah i'm not gonna call him by you know the name everyone else at the time called him his nickname Mm. richard yeah (laughs) but um yeah like moving on real quick just wanted to say before 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 we move on to indycar real quick that i'm of the belief that I, I've got to give a shout out to one of my listeners, Sabra, as well, that mentioned this point to me that, you know, I, I kind of dismissed him in February when he, when he said to me that, oh, the lap record thing is not a big deal. And you know, I, I, that's what, I always believed that it wasn't a big deal, that I think that fans aren't really into the whole lap time thing. And, you know, it doesn't really matter on paper. And I think that's, that still applies to races. But I can't lie. Hearing things like, oh, a lap record just got broken. That sounds cool to the casual audience member. Hmm. Oh, this was this was the fastest ever lap of this track. 
that's a cool thing to get in on a broadcast. So to be honest with you, know, you what I'm yeah, a little yeah. bit surprised about is that mm. like everyone's going, oh, this is the fastest lap of Bahrain uh, over the beat the V10 record. I'm like, it took F1 that long to beat a 10 year record, really? Yeah, because <laughs> between, it was between 2004 and 2010, they were down. Like between that periods, they went to the, they went to V8. They they added less and less downforce. They had tires that degraded faster, so they, they couldn't mm. get that ultimate kind of lap time pace in. They were slowing the cars down in the mid 2000s, not speeding them up. So it kind of naturally makes sense that, you know, it took them 10 years to get back to where they were because obviously with these hybrids, Pandora's boxes started to become open. But I just wanted to say before we move on real quick that for me, I'm of the inclination and belief that there is something to see, you know, that record's being broken and I have, to, I have to hold my hands up on that one. But at the same time, it's okay to say it's cool that these hybrids cars are actually fast, like legitimately fast at their limit. Yeah. And at the same time, like just because that is happening doesn't mean your precious V10s are under attack. No. Like if, you, if you're that incensed with lap times and whatnot, feel free to defecate over the 2004 season review and wub one out for all I care because that's not going anywhere. It's always uh, going to be there. Your history is, is still preserved. Can I you're just not say... Open, yeah, it's like, just, 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 give me two seconds, Johnson. Go. Like, what I'm saying is that you're not going to open your 2004 season review and suddenly find an, a copy of F1 2015 in the cover. That's not <laughs> what's going to happen because that record's been broken. Yeah. It, it's, like, it's not going to it's not gonna make that era look any worse by having these cars be faster. And if we're talking about more than one era in a positive light, that's only a good thing, quite hmm. frankly. So for me, I'm of the belief that who cares if like why why must one era be better? No. Like I think F1 just has this really bad tendency of clinging onto the past so badly more than anything else because you know these new cars don't sound as nice or they don't look as nice and mm. yeah you can you take your point Johnson but it's, it, it just frustrates me seeing that happen still in 2016. Yeah, it is annoying. I mean, to be honest with you, if you really want to obsess over older generation of Formula One cars. There's something called the Masters Historic World Formula One Championship, where they they race cars exclusively from the 1970s and 80s. I've commentated on it before. It's an amazing spectacle because, of course, you've got all those classic. It was just before the turbo era of the 80s. So you get all those uh, incredible uh, Lotuses and uh, Williams and Brabham's cars like that from the uh, yeah, Arrows, early Arrows cars, the Shadows cars like that. Um, some of the best Formula One racing I think I've ever seen when I saw them at Brands Hatch uh, last year. Absolutely incredible. But they're not going anywhere. There's people preserving those cars, celebrating the history of the sport. You know, if the sport never took steps forward, we'd be complaining about the, the sport standing still. And really, if you want motorsport, this is the great thing about motorsport. You want motorsport that is all about spectacle and all about noise and that. NASCAR's not going anywhere. They make a racket. British touring cars make a pretty good noise. There's, you know, sports car racing has got the Corvettes, which have a thunderous V8 in them. They've got screaming. They used to have screaming V10s and such, and you still get them in GT3 racing. That's a wide appeal. To be honest with you, if you're squeezing that much power out now of smaller engines, then ultimately isn't that, that's not a bad thing. I like the fact that it's, it's kind of, pushing the limits of, uh, of speed and performance. I mean, if cars still went as fast as they did in the 1970s and were still as safe as they were in the 1970s, or perhaps not, 
then that would be more of a point for concern. But I don't know. As you say, the, the V10 cars are still there. You want to watch them boss GP. They run the old V10 F1 cars in that. They're not going anywhere. We'll remember them in their history. They're all a part of Formula 1 history. They're still there. But for now, we're in the here and now, and the cars we've got, I think, are pretty cool. Yeah. And that's my take on that situation anyway. Right, let's get some IndyCar out of the way before we wrap. We had the uh, IndyCar Grand Prix of Phoenix. Be careful, you might get a season assist letter from the FOM regarding this. But uh, we had the Grand Prix of Phoenix this past weekend, and and it was another win for Scott Dixon King. And he's, I think, he's now fourth on the all-time IndyCar wins list now with that with that one. Yes, fourth in all-time wins. Fourth in all-time, I think he tied with um, Al Unser Jr., which is, again, a great, great name to be tying yourself up there with Dixon taking another pretty comfortable win in the end. I mean, it, it, it was a situation where there was a lot of restarts, and I think it's fair to say, King, that as a Grand Prix itself, it was very hard to pass in this race. Yes, yes. It, it seems like... You really had to go all out if you wanted to get around someone. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. They, Someone in front of you either had to make a mistake or you had to really just fully commit to a move. Indeed, and I think one of the biggest observations I drew from watching that race was uh, Ryan Hunter Ray going absolutely ballistic off of any and all the restarts. Like he, he passed three cars around the outside as soon as the race started. And I, I still find it funny that Paul Tracy was so complimentary of Hunter Ray, saying, oh, he's an, he's an elite driver now in IndyCar and he can win on any given track on any given day. And I think it's, I think that's a very fair statement to make because Hunter Ray is right up there. Um, but it, it, it was funny because, like, I watched, like, I'd personally had never seen Phoenix before as a track because I oh know it was the first time it's been on the IndyCar calendar, I think, since 2006, I want to say. Um, and I didn't know what the track was like. I watched some onboards. I watched the fantastic Joseph and Newgarden uh, visor cam um, with the GoPro that they put on their YouTube channel, which is really great. You should really check it out in case you haven't already. And I, I, looked at one, I took one look at the track and I thought, where are these guys going to pass? <laughs> like, yes. like that was the first one that came into my head and it turns out my fears were justified king because it was just such a struggle to pass and did will power make a good point last month when he talked about how these cars maybe have too much downforce now yeah i would say i'd say for the short ovals there's just far too much downforce because you don't have to slow down to take these corners it, it might even be it might even be better to go as fast as you can into the corner so you get as much downforce as possible. And that's absolutely yeah. crazy, considering that Phoenix has been a staple on the NASCAR schedule for many years, and it's considered one of the slower tracks on the NASCAR schedule. They're averaging about 140, 150 miles an hour around there. IndyCar, 190 the entire lap. That is yeah. insane. Yep, Helio Castroneves' track record pole time was 192.6 miles an hour, um, which, which is dangerously close to 300, I think it's, I think it's 310 kilometers in old money, um, that, which is just ridiculous. And yeah, it didn't really work for IndyCar on the track. We, we still got an entertaining race, but that was mostly down to wincing at some of these guys' passes attempts. And one of the guys that I think mostly benefited from this was Max Chilton King, a sensational performance uh, as he finished in seventh place. Yeah, he basically clawed his way to to sixth and 
pretty much had to fight off everyone and their mother to keep six. <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those situations where, you know, Chilton was a new guy in there, but he looked there for five years already because very aggressive moments. And this incurred the wrath of one Graham Rahal as <laughs> as, as a, uh, the great IndyCar writer Marshall Pruitt puts up on Racer.com. He said um, during, during the session that... Uh, or had an interview with Chilton, and Chilton said, I can't say what I learned because it's rude. It favors the stupidity of certain people. I'm new to taking those risks. I will have to build up to it. But to me, it's a bit too fast. I lost out a couple of times on restarts because some drivers didn't seem to give a damn. <laughs> Ray Hall, who finished fifth in his number 15 Honda, says Chilton is a hypocrite. And he says in response, this is a quote from Ray Hall, I think he should listen to himself. He had the fastest car around, but he was constantly sticking his rear end, end, his front end plate into everybody's left rear corner on corner entry. That is not a safe move on a road course, let alone an oval at 200 miles an hour. That's the definition of stupidity. And he also would go on to say that Chil- he thinks that Chilton could have won and that Ganassi had the fastest car on the table. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, King, but I can't help but shake the feeling that Ray Hall's been a little bit salty because I think everybody was aggressive on that race because I think he kind of had to be. <laughs> yeah, like Indy cars on short ovals, I'd say even stock cars on short ovals, it's passed or be passed. Mm, if you're definitely. not aggressive out there, someone will be aggressive on you. Yeah, exactly. And like Ray Hall pointing the finger at Chilton saying that, oh, he's the fast car, but he was really dangerous. I don't think it holds. There was a lot of guys who took liberties in those. You all saw Charlie Kimball completely chop block Joseph Newgarden during that race as well. We saw Rossi spin into the wall. We had Ed Carpenter hit the wall. We had Rossi, we brought out the caution two laps from the end because he hit the wall. Sebastian Borde hit the wall. Hunter Ray grazed it too. So if you went offline on here, you'd be punished for it more unlikely. And even worse so because, again, if somebody was aggressive, you probably had to make way or have an enormous accident. And we were very lucky that we didn't really get any of those during the Grand Prix. It tended to be more single car incidents more than anything else. But uh it was for me. It was still an entertaining race, King. But I think it. I think it's raised some legitimate questions about the aero kits again after we talked about them last week. Yeah, I mean, uh, the series themselves said they're going to assess downforce levels for next year's Phoenix race. They just wanted to, you know, get one in the books to see how bad it would be. So they probably would be racing. Oh, I wouldn't say you know, indie, like indie spec arrow kits here, but maybe something in between this and the road courses. But I think, yes, as you said, they need, do need to address, address the arrow kits as a whole. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think this race was a prime example of that. I think, I think Graham, as much as I like him, was being a bit naive here because he was at it too, quite frankly, <laughs> not to mention half the field was. Because like I said, you had to be in order to pass people on here because yeah. there was no obvious passing spot on the track and you had to work really hard to get it because the straights were not long enough to generate enough switching to think about, you know, being side by side to be able to pass somebody unless they had a problem. So 
for me, Phoenix was not a bad race. I had it as about a six and a half, seven out of ten kind of race. I don't think it was bad by any stretch, but I feel like it was a race that kind of exposed some of the problems the series have got with these aero kits mm-hmm. more than anything else. Johnson, you got a real take on that, real quick? Yeah, real it kind of reminds stuff. me a lot of uh, last year when NASCAR was experimenting with different aero packages and they tried a high drag package for a few races mm. at uh, Indianapolis and Michigan. And uh, as King said earlier, it led to a very similar scenario where passing was almost impossible uh the amount of dirty air was absolutely insane the predicted slipstream down the straights being able to pull up using the big kind of hole being punched in the air by the lead car that didn't work so literally what happened was that the restarts became absolute cluster fruit cakes because cars would just go scattering everywhere you'd go five wide because you'd literally go i have got to grab as many positions as possible in one maybe two laps and then the field will be spread out half a second between each car and I won't be able to get closer. I'll just be stuck like that. And, you know, Phoenix, as you said, passing is so difficult because it's not like you could outbreak someone into a corner because they were barely breaking and you couldn't really slipstream because the straights were pretty narrow. And especially on the back straight when you've got that dog leg, it's how do you do that? It was just so difficult. So you, it literally was who dares wins at Phoenix. And, you know, it probably made for a pretty good show. I mean, the race, as you said, was pretty good. But I, I, I think the general feeling of the drivers was, you know what? At least with Fontana last year, where the racing was crazy, at least we had room to move. At least that was a big track and we didn't have as much downforce and we could sort of move around a bit. Phoenix going that quickly, the margin for error was minuscule. So it'll be interesting, I think, going forward. I think think the error kits right now, the problems have been exposed. You know, they tried to make them so there'd be differences between the cars, they'd be more identifiable, they'd look more spectacular and obviously they'd generate more downforce. And I think... IndyCar is running into an issue, you know, the same one as NASCAR. How do you solve the high downforce dirty air issue on ovals? The fact is you kind of can't because it's even more of a factor when you're running close together on ovals than you are on road courses. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it going forward, especially with the 100th Indy 500. Ah, I'll try that one again, especially with the 100th <laughs> Indy 500 coming up on the horizon. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very fair to say. And that will just about do it for this episode. And I know you guys have been very eager for me to be one. Watch Bike Live, damn it. Uh, first of all, um, we're on every Friday on Downforce. And, you know, if you, if you want to see me really intense on bikes, that's probably the place to go. But we'll definitely talk some MotoGP on the next episode as well, some Formula E stuff as well. And we'll have your questions. So if you have a question for the podcast that you'd like to get in the next week's episode, leave a comment on SoundCloud or get a hold of me. Um, on Twitter at Harrison101HD or on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. And you can, and you can, we'll, could be very much in the next episode. So we'll talk some of those then. Before we go, Johnson, talk, tell us about your new podcast. Uh, yes, the one that's very much work in progress, but it is coming very soon. It's, it's going to be called The Bringers of Noise. And basically, uh, Dre is going to enjoy this podcast because it means people are going to stop nagging him to talk about stuff like NASCAR, British touring cars, V8 supercars. Worry no more. I'll be talking about it on my podcast, The Bringers of Noise. The tentative plan right now is that it might be live on Tuesday evenings, 
but released on Wednesdays on Archive. There's still things to be worked out there, but basically you'll hear about it. A pilot episode has been dropped. It was recorded at the British Touring Car Championship season launch at Donington. Me and my buddy Lewis were both, you know, British Touring Car fanatics, so we had a full season free preview program sat at the top of the Corona Curves at Donington on a rather breezy spring day, so it was rather nice. Um, the first episode's in the books. Episode two should be coming pretty soon. Still some details to work out, but yeah, we'll keep you posted on here very soon. Lock in for it. Yeah, so that is a thing. King, I know you're still doing the finish line with Athlete, aren't you, as well, every now and again? Yeah, every now and again. I think we, oh God, we put out our last episode, I think about two weeks ago. So you can go check that out if you got time. Yeah, so that is still a thing. And of course, we'll still be producing highlights as well on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Check it out. I put an update video up on there yesterday. But thanks for taking us over 600 subscribers. Shout out to all the guys at the F1 and IndyCar subreddits for helping us out. You guys are fantastic. Um, hopefully, uh, we, we, we worked out the formula. Don't talk bad about Lewis Hamilton. And you're probably going to get some votes up. Um, they're not they're not quite as savage as I first thought, King. So I guess we're in good shape now. <laughs> we're back in their uh, good nah. <laughs> It's downvote city, fam. <laughs> down, it's downvote city, unless you bring up some relevant news story or take some cool pictures. Um, but um, yeah, check us out on there. Um, thanks for taking us over 600 subs. Much appreciated as well. And that will just about do it for this episode. So from until next week, from me, Adam Johnson and Ryan King, thanks very much for listening to Motorsport 101 and we'll catch you guys next time. Good night. Good night.